sickle, bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please come in, have a seat. All the uh, books surrounding you are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I hope everyone is enjoying their October thus far. I know we uh, each greet the Halloween season in different ways. I imagine most all the listeners are pretty excited about Halloween coming. True, it's a lovely time, but there can be mixed feelings and questions. Why should it only be one day, for instance? And then the day comes, and then it's gone, and, and then the, long, the longest wait all over again. Oh, really thought of it like that. A whole 365 days when I was a kid at least that was my feeling about it. And then there's the resentment of why it should only be a single day and why have they penned all the good things up into just that one day. It doesn't sound fair when you describe it like that but people have already been celebrating. It's not just one day. It's all October. You can even see stuff appearing in stores in September. No, that's too early. You can be hard to please. I I did say mixed feelings. Our show is pretty much Halloween all year round, too. You could say that, but there are degrees and expectations. and I don't know that this episode is any more Halloween than any other, but we'll have another closer to the day itself that may key into listeners' uh, seasonal needs a bit more closely. Uh... A follow-up to uh, last year's uh, Spook Shows episode. And we did already hang decorations on the first. Oh, uh, yes, I, I thought you wanted to. Well, I did. I just wish we weren't using decorations that are falling apart. Well, they're antique. Those are Bystel originals from 1917. They're very charming, but they're so fragile. The tissue is decaying. It looks like the witch's chin has been eaten by moths. Well, isn't that appropriate? Decaying things hanging up for Halloween? I, I like it. I think they're perfect. Anyway, uh, let's talk about bees. Something I'm sure you like a little better. The fortune telling? Yes. So, I've been teaching the bees a little fortune telling trick. Like in my aunt and uncle psychic bee show. This will be for our next episode for Halloween, since uh, fortune telling is uh, traditional to the occasion. And we're including all you listeners. All you need to do is contact us before October 20th through the website, Patreon, Facebook, or however. And the psychic bees will give you a personal reading. I don't know how many requests we'll get, but we'll do a a few on air, so to speak, and then others when we're not recording. Everyone who asks will receive a fortune. We don't need a specific question, just your name. The bees will know what you need to know. But if you want to include a little Halloween greeting, we can read those out, too. Yes, nothing excessive. I reserve the right to... uh... Edit. Since we're not yet doing public shows with the bees and can't invite you all here for a Halloween party, uh, we thought this would uh, be a good compromise. Party would be out of the question. Don't forget October 20th. That's when we need to hear from you in order for you to be included. Okay, I, I think that covers it. And now it's time to get into our show. Episode 76... Ghost Trains and Railroad Terrors. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the uh, intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. 
I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bonin Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including short bonus episodes. I'll have more on Patreon at the end of our episode. train. There is no rattle of wheels, no puffing and blowing of the locomotive. Only from time to time the engine whistle is heard in a fitful, murmuring, wailing gust of sound. The lamps in front burn blue. Sickly lambent flames leap from the funnel and the furnace door. The carriages themselves are mere skeletons. They are all shattered, dislocated, ruined. Yet, by some deadly principle of cohesion, they keep together. And through the form of their cracking ribs and framework, you see the passengers. Horrible sight to see. Some have limbs bound up in splints. Some lie on stretchers. But they all have faces and eyes, and the eyes and the faces together with the phantom guard with his lantern, from which long rays of ghastly light proceed, together with the phantom driver with his jaw bound up, the phantom stoker who feeds the fire as though he were making a grave, the phantom commercial travelers wrapped in shrouds, the pair of lovers in their first-class coupe locked in the embrace of death in which they were found after the accident. The stout old gentleman with his head in his lap, the legs of the man, the rest of whose body was never found, but who still has a face and eyes. The skeletons of horses in the horse cars, the stacks of coffins in the luggage vans, for all is transparent, and you can see the fatal verge of the embankment beyond, through the train. All these sights of horror flit continually past, up and down, backwards and forwards, haunting the line where the accident was. This passage from the essay Poetry on the Railway by George A. Sala appeared in an 1855 edition of Charles Dickens' magazine Household Words. Sala was a well-known journalist of the day, but also a writer of fiction, including the uh, pornographic novel The Mysteries of Brabena House, uh, not published under his uh, actual name, and completely unrelated to our topic, but Charles Dickens we will return to in just a bit. No tongue can ever tell, no pen can ever write, no one will know but those who saw the horrors of that night. On board this 1927 song, The Wreck of the Royal Palm, recorded by Vernon Dallard, laments a terrible collision that took place only two days before Christmas of 1926. Around 7 p.m., as the cold rain poured down, the royal palm smashed headfirst into the Ponce de Leon near Rockmart, Georgia. An eyewitness description published a day after the accident in the Leaf Chronicle of Clarksville, Tennessee, provides some horrific detail the songwriter tastefully Omitted. Through a window we dragged the decapitated body of an apparently middle-aged woman. Two tots, who expected to greet Santa Claus tomorrow, no doubt, were so badly crushed that identification will be almost impossible. Through one window of the liner, we saw a man still seated at his chair at the table. Apparently, he was only dazed. 
We got him out somehow and found that his body had been severed below the waist. However, decapitations and the grisly details of train accidents were not omitted from other folk songs, even in cases where they seemed quite incongruous. A fairly well-known example of this is the song In the Pines. In the pines, in the pines, where the sun don't ever shine, I wish you would night. This version of the song by Huddy Ledbetter, who's better known under his nickname, Leadbelly, was recorded in 1944, and it first seems to be a dialogue between a man and his unfaithful lover, but then rather jarringly shifts to describe a grisly accident involving a steam locomotive's driving wheel. That is, the wheels under the engine connected to or powered by the pistons. His head was bound in a driver wheel And his body would never be found It's never entirely clear who the victim in this song is, and there have been gallons of ink spilled by uh, those eager to uh, patch together a narrative from this uh, dreamlike and uh, fractured lyric. But there is a simpler explanation for all this. Before Lead Belly recorded it in 1944, the song had undergone a messy and roughly century-long evolution. It was a hybrid of several ballads circulating in Appalachia under different names as far back as uh, 1847. The first recorded version, sung by Doc Walsh in 1926, clears up the train connection a bit. Though it seems that in the older telling, the decapitated body belonged to a lost female, the lover of the narrator of the song. And he sadly recalls his last sight of her walking down the railroad tracks. By the way, you'll be hearing lots of snippets of songs in this episode. If you'd like to hear them in their entirety, we're making available a streaming library of the collection to uh, anyone joining our Patreon before December. Just uh, something to keep in mind. Now, uh, while we're on the topic of grisly train deaths in folk songs, another fairly well-known example, this one based upon an actual event, describes an engineer scalded to death as his boiler explodes. It was on that grade that he lost his average and you see what a jump he made. You're hearing a particularly popular version of it recorded in 1924 by Vernon Dowart again. It's called The Wreck of the Old 97. The uh, cheery whistling is a bit unsettling here, given how terrible the wreck was. It happened on September 27, 1903, just outside Danville, Virginia. The uh, 97 was a mail train running behind schedule that day, and trying to make up on the lost time, engineer Steve Brody pushed a bit too fast into a sharp curve as he approached a bridge, and the train derailed. Plummeting 75 feet into the ravine below and killing 11 of the 18 aboard. The bodies of the firemen who stoked the engine were mangled beyond recognition, and of Steve Brody, the engineer. He was found in the wreck with his hand on the throttle and a skull dead to death with a sea. Dahlhart's uh, recording of the song is often said to be the first million-selling country music record, and, well, here's hoping country music one day returns to its roots in death and misery. He 
Just to round out our tour of popular train death ballads, there's also the song Wreck on the CNO, CNO being the Chesapeake and Ohio Railway. It's again based on a real accident that took place on October 23rd, 1890, near Hinton, West Virginia. An accident precipitated by a rock slide on the tracks. The song was first popularized by Ernest Stoneman as a sort of follow-up to another uh, death and disaster song that had made him famous, The Titanic, which he'd recorded earlier that year, and you're hearing Stoneman's version. Up the road he darted, upon the rock he crashed, upside down his engine turned, upon his breast it smashed, his head was on the firebox door. The uh, death of the engineer, George Alley, who... Uh, in the ballad, at least, was discovered on the verge of death amid flaming wreckage, makes for the sort of melodrama we'll next discuss. By the turn of the last century, death by train seems to have become something of an obsession in the popular arts. While American songwriters were penning songs about theatrically dying engineers, our cousins in the UK were using trains on stage as engines of menace. The appearance of a train, or at least its noise and lights, was a popular gimmick in a genre of theater known as sensation drama. Peaking in popularity in the 1860s, sensation dramas were the theatrical equivalent of Hollywood special effects pictures, employing elaborate stagecraft to depict avalanches, sinking ships, volcanic eruptions, and the like. But locomotives, as a relatively new phenomenon, seem to exert a particular attraction over London's novelty-hungry audiences. The 1863 play The Engineer depicted a villain overrun by a locomotive, while the 1909 drama The Whip was highlighted by a scene in which a valuable stolen racehorse is rescued moments before an oncoming train crashes into its transport car. The 1867 play Under the Gaslight is mainly famous for introducing the trope of a victim tied to the tracks by a dastardly villain. Though it's not as you'd imagine here, the would-be victim of the oncoming train is a male comic relief character. The gag was so popular that a total of five plays were staged the following year, featuring the same gimmick. And uh, while discussing British theater, I would be remiss not to mention the popular 1923 play, which is called Ghost Train. It was adapted for film in 1931 and 1932. Uh, while it's full of interesting dialogue and characters, there's a bit of a bait and switch involved, something that will make horror fans sad. And I'll just leave it at that. You can check it out if you like. But uh, back to Charles Dickens, as promised. His novel, Dombey and Son, uh, published as a serial between uh, 1846 and 1848, also features trains as villains, or at least expresses an extreme ambivalence in uh, Dickens' description of the railroad's effect on the traditional way of life in the towns and villages of England at the time. But as this is neither a... Uh, literature or sociology podcast. I won't belabor that point. And instead, I'll just get to the scene in which the uh, novel's villain, James Carker, has a uh, very gory encounter with the train, the very first death by train in all literature. And 
I believe some of the details might be referring to uh, the movement of driver wheels we've been hearing about. Uh, Dickens has his villainous character, Carker, stumbling onto the tracks. Carker. Felt the earth tremble. Knew in a moment the rush was come. Uttered a shriek. Looked round. Saw the red eyes bleared and dim in the daylight close upon him. Was beaten down. Caught up and whirled away upon a jagged mill that spun him round and round and struck him limb from limb and licked his stream of life up with its fiery heat and cast his mutilated fragments in the air. Dickens' feelings about the railroads were no doubt colored by an experience he had in the summer of 1865. He was returning to London by train when... In Staplehurst, Kent, the conductor failed to notice some flags warning of work in progress on a viaduct he was about to cross, and as he did so, the engine derailed, plunged into the river below, and left several carriages dangling precariously in midair. Not being physically injured, Dickens himself administered what aid he could to wounded passengers, some of whom died during his ministrations. And the author was so traumatized by it all as to have uh, lost his voice, or ability to speak at least, for a full two weeks, and thereafter would not board a train unless no other means of transportation could be arranged. And if forced to travel by rail, his children are said to have observed that he would spend the journey sweating and trembling. Three months later, Some of this train anxiety appears to have been channeled into his classic ghost story, The Signalman. It's an excellent read, and there's a good 1976 BBC ghost story for Christmas adaptation, so I won't spoil your enjoyment of those by prattling on with further details and spoilers, but it's an excellent ghost story worth checking out. Now, I'd like to switch over to some actual ghost stories. Our first being in North Carolina, about a half hour west of Wilmington, in the tiny Brunswick County community known as Mako Station. The Mako Ghost Light, according to witnesses, is a luminescence that bobs here and there, flickers out, and reappears from time to time. Legend has it that it's the light of the lantern carried by a dead railway man by the name of Joe Baldwin. Baldwin met his end while riding in a caboose one night in 1867. Sighting a fast-moving train hurtling up the track behind them, Baldwin said to have waved his lantern to alert the engineer of the oncoming train, but all to no avail, and the train was violently rear-ended, and somehow, in the process, Baldwin was decapitated. From that day forward, he said to wander by night searching with his lantern for his missing head. The uh, legend doesn't make clear what sort of eyes the headless body searches with, but legends aren't obliged to fill in those sorts of details. While it's said that the light was observed as early as 1873, interest in the phenomenon and its lore seems to have actually picked up after World War II as a teenage car culture appeared and outings to scary legend-tripping sites became a popular pastime. A 1946 article from the Charlotte News comments, Recently, some heedless youngsters have adopted the dangerous habit of parking across the Mako railroad lines for a better view of the lights. Unless the practice is stopped, say officials, Joe Baldwin is going to have company. By the 50s and 60s, legend trippers were sharing more dramatic stories of the ghost light, mentioning flashes of dazzling brightness and headless bodies shambling around their parked cars. In 1964, the celebrated paranormalist Hans Holzer visited the town to investigate and was greeted by a thousand school kids waving lanterns in celebration. In a talk given at the local high school, Holzer expresses belief that the phenomenon was authentic, but he himself didn't witness the light, attributing this to 
the ghost being frightened off by all the ballyhoo surrounding his visit. In 1889, Mako was visited by an even greater personage who did witness the ghost slight, President Grover Cleveland. Well, uh, supposedly, there's no actual record of Cleveland traveling through in any of the papers of the day. And actually, there's no record of any Joe Baldwin or any wreck in 1867. There's a Charles Baldwin injured in an 1856 accident, so maybe there's something there. As for the phenomenon itself, the location where the light is sighted is swampy, so naturally swamp gas has been cited as an explanation. But at least the uh, swampy environment does add a certain creepy ambiance. The tracks themselves went unused for decades and were removed in 1977, which may or may not have affected the sightings, depending on who you ask. Whether or not the tracks have been removed, or sightings have decreased, or accidents and personages fabricated, there does remain one undeniable testament to the local importance of the whole phenomenon. A short stretch of road named for a man with a long reputation. Joe Baldwin Drive. Another ghost story associated with the railroad is the Texas legend of the San Antonio Ghost Tracks. On a rainy morning, sometime in the 1930s or 40s, it said a bus full of school children stalled out on a particular railroad crossing, unfortunately, just as a train was approaching. The ensuing collision split the bus in half and sent ten young passengers to their deaths. And today, the ghostly victims linger at the site, protecting other travelers from a similar fate. The crossing eventually became a destination sought out by legend trippers who, by custom, would stop their engines while parked across the tracks and wait for the protective ghosts to take action cars are said to slowly roll off the tracks as if pushed by ghostly hands, and some legend trippers report hearing the voices or laughter of invisible children. There are also stories of children, uh, unseen at the time, showing up in photographs once they're developed, as well as a phantom hitchhiker tale in which a young girl lingering around the tracks by night is picked up by a concerned motorist. Following the girl's directions to her parents' house, the driver arrives only to discover, as these stories go, that no one is in the car. A particularly elaborate iteration of the legend makes the vehicle a church bus or van driven by a nun. As the sole survivor of the terrible accident, she is haunted by guilt eventually driven to attempt suicide by parking her car on the very site of the previous tragic encounter. As the oncoming train approaches, her car begins to roll. Her life is saved, and evidence of this miracle is provided when she discovers tiny handprints on the bumper of her car. Ghost handprints are an important element of legend tripper lore, which suggests that those daring to park their vehicles on the haunted rails dust their bumpers with talcum powder or flour in which the prints of the victim's tiny hands will manifest. Spoil sports have pointed out that there are no reports in any local newspapers of any such accident, though a 1938 account of an actual school bus hit by a train in Salt Lake City appeared as a headline in the San Antonio Express on December 2nd that year, and may have provided a seed of the legend. Now, while North Carolina's Mako ghost light lore may have no basis in history, it's not so with the ghost train of Boston Bridge, a couple miles west of Statesville, North Carolina. On August 27th, 1891, the most dreadful railroad disaster in the state's history occurred when, for reasons unknown, the Richmond and Danville No. 9 jumped the tracks 
and plummeted 70 feet off the bridge and into the creek below. 23 passengers were killed. So far, that's all dreadfully real, but here's where the legend kicks in. On the night of the wreck's 50th anniversary, an unnamed woman and her husband have a flat tire near the Bastian Bridge. As the man goes out in search of help, the woman hears the whistle and rumble of an approaching train. The headlamps appear on the horizon, and as the engine draws close to the bridge, she witnesses the train careen from the tracks and crash into a twisted, splintered heap in the creek. Hearing the victim's scream, she runs to the creekside where she sees passengers flailing and floating lifeless in the water. She's approached by a railroad man who identifies himself as the baggage master. But before they can exchange more than a few words, she hears a car pull up on the road above and runs to find her husband arriving with the manager of the nearby country store. Describing what she has witnessed, she returns with the men to the quietly flowing creek, and it's literally crickets. Her husband tries to convince her that she had fallen asleep in the car and dreamed it all, but she insists they visit the nearest train station and inquire about an accident. But somehow, the station master has no news of any accidents. And then it comes to him. He realizes that what she's describing sounds very much like the wreck of 1891, one that occurred 50 years ago that very night. Well, so goes the legend. I don't know when it started, but it's been in circulation, we can probably guess, since the 1950s, as with the others. We know it's been around since at least 1991, when, on the centennial of the accident, according to a story in the Asheville Citizen Times, an estimated 150 legend trippers showed up to see the ghost train, or, as it turns out, to scare themselves and swap stories and buy souvenir t-shirts. But in 2010, on the 119th anniversary of the crash, a dozen ghost hunters experienced a chillingly authentic train encounter. Chris Kaiser was one of those who ventured out on the 300-foot bridge. Kaiser and 11 others were on this bridge early this morning, looking for ghosts from a legendary train wreck. But a real train rounded the curve, barreling towards the group. Authorities say Kaiser pushed his girlfriend out of the path of the train. It's not something that, you know, you should... Kaiser, however was not so lucky and struck and died. Some accounts of the tragedy suggest that the ghost hunters were slow to abandon the trestle at the train's approach, believing that the oncoming locomotive was the much-anticipated ghost train. In 1865, the same year Dickens underwent his brush with death in the Staplehurst disaster, Abraham Lincoln experienced his unpleasant encounter with John Wilkes Booth at the Ford Theater. The assassination left the nation grieving, and as this was an era obsessed with all things funereal, it was decided that the president's body, after it lay in state of the capital, should make a tour through a dozen cities of the northern states. Lincoln was accompanied on the journey by the corpse of his son Willie, who'd died three years earlier, Removed from the crypt in Georgetown's Oak Hill Cemetery, Willie was to be buried alongside his father in the Lincoln family plot in Springfield, Illinois. While Lincoln's coffin was unloaded at the 12 stops where he would lay in state, thousands more mourning citizens residing in towns between the stops also came out just to catch a glimpse of the funeral train as it merely passed through. The train was famously shrouded in black in the manner of Victorian hearses, so its appearance must have been not only melancholy, but a bit unearthly. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, given Lincoln's presumed interest in spiritualism and premonitions of his own death, the funeral train became attached to ghostly legends. 
We'll share one of those now, recounted in an 1872 issue of the Albany Evening Times. Um, an uh, explanatory note first, a pilot engine is mentioned, referring to a locomotive without carriages that preceded the actual funeral train by about 10 minutes to ensure there were no obstructions on the line and to let those gathered along the way know that the funeral train's arrival was imminent. Anyway, the story is presented as a reporter's conversation with a night watchman on the New York Central Railroad. He says, Regularly, in the month of April, about midnight, the air on the track becomes very keen and cutting. On either side, it is warm and still. Every watchman, when he feels his air, steps off the track and sits down to watch. Soon after, the pilot engine, with long black streamers and a band of black instruments playing dirges, grinning skeletons sitting all about would pass noiselessly, and the very air grows black. If it is moonlight, clouds always come over the moon, and the music seems to linger, as if frozen with horror. A few moments after, and the phantom train glides by. Flags and streamers hang about. The track ahead seems covered with black carpet, and the wheels are draped with the same. The coffin of the murdered Lincoln is seen lying in the center of the car. And all about it in the air and the train behind are vast numbers of blue-coated men, some with coffins on their backs, others leaning on them. It seems then that all the vast armies that died during the war are escorting the phantom train of the president. The wind, if blowing, dies away at once, and all over the earth a solemn hush almost stifling prevails. If a train were passing, its noise would be drowned in silence and the phantom train would ride over it. Clocks and watches would always stop and when looked at, are found to be from five to eight minutes behind. Everywhere on the road about the 27th of April, the time of watches is found suddenly behind. This, said the leading watchman, was from the passage of the Phantom Train. Oh, it's the ghost train, it's the ghost train, roundhouse at the pearly gate. Many souls have got their ticket on the train that's never late. Ghost Train was recorded in 1951 by the Clinch Mountain Clan, a husband-wife team of West Virginians, Stoney and Wilma Lee Cooper. It's one of many songs that imagine the train as a conveyance for the souls of the dead, an idiom from Appalachian gospel music originally. While the Cooper's song is more playful, it would have drawn inspiration from more serious-minded songs like Little Black Train, best known from its uh, 1937 recording by the Carter family. There's a little black train a coming, set your business right. There's a little black train a coming, and it may be here tonight. The Carter's song is more representative of the uh, gospel tradition and is uh, freighted, if you'll pardon the pun, with warnings about getting right with God before death or the train comes to take you. Little Black Train is also the title of and basis for an excellent 1954 story by Manley Wade Wellman, a uh, pulp writer of supernatural tales of Appalachia, whom I'm sure some of you enjoy. That this dark train is coming, prepare to take a ride. The Carter's song was adapted from a 1926 recording by a black preacher from Georgia, the Reverend J.M. Gates, a song more ominously entitled, Death's Black Train is Coming. I'm going to sing a song tonight, and the subject of this song is, Death's Black Train is Coming. 
is coming too. Whether you believe it or not, it's coming. Oh, the little black train is coming. Get on your business right. You better set your house in order. Ah, oh, the train may be here tonight. God spoke to heaven. Gates' record, pressed by the Atlanta Photograph Company, sold like hotcakes, and after vendors complained about not being able to keep it in stock, a second pressing was made, 34,000 copies, at 10 times what was initially produced. And oddly, there was another version of Death's Black Train, recorded in 1926 by another black preacher from Georgia, H.R. Tomlin, but I'm not sure which of these came first. Death is a black train which stops at every man's door. Death has left its tracks, dotted with graves, and wet with tears. I want you to listen to this song entitled, Death's Little Black Train is Coming. Sometimes the more subtle wordings about an unexpected death and getting right with God might not be enough to save listeners' souls. Something more urgent was needed, and the death train became a terrifying hell train driven by the devil himself. In 1927, another black preacher, this time from Texas, the Reverend A.W. Nix, recorded the truly remarkable Black Diamond Express. This train is known as the Black Diamond Express train to hell. Sin is the engineer, pleasure is the headlight, and the devil is the conductor. I see the black diamond as she starts off for hell. The bell is ringing, hell bound, hell bound. The devil cries out, all aboard for hell. First station, the drunkard bell. Stop down let all the drunkards get on board. I have a big crowd down there drinking jump steady. Some drinking shinny, some drinking moonshine, some drinking white mule and red horse. All of you drunkards, you've got to go to hell on the Black Diamond train. The Black Diamond starts off for hell now. Next station! Each stop, as you hear, is made to pick up a different species of sinner with one of the stops named Conjuration Station, at which a big crowd of Louisiana Conjurers get on board to repent for their voodoo. And there's also an outstandingly weird short film made around 1930 by the black preacher and traveling evangelist James Gist, along with his wife Eloise. It's called Hellbound Train. It's very much a work of outsider art featuring a cloaked and masked devil driving a train filled with all manner of colorful sinners, and I'll link that one on the uh, Patreon site. Stranger lying on a barroom floor Had drank so much he could drink no more And so he fell asleep with a troubled brain To dream that he rode on a downbound train The engine with blood was sweaty and damp And brilliantly lit with a brimstone lamp And if a few was shovel and bone The uh, early American rock star Chuck Berry, who grew up in a religious household, was likely exposed to some of these uh, song sermons, which may have inspired this uh, lesser-known song of his, recorded in 1955, Downbound Train, which was probably intended originally to be Hellbound Train, but that wouldn't have been allowed by the uh, record executives. Along the same lines is a song by Jin Gillette, which is probably a pseudonym, but for whom we don't know. All we know about this mystery single is that he or she recorded the song in Los Angeles in 1961 and that it's delightful. 
One more bit I wanted to share. It's not about trains per se, but it's related to the Lincoln funeral tour, and I think it's a suitably ghoulish note on which to end our program. The prolonged nature of Lincoln's postmortem journey inevitably put embalming and its efficacy in the spotlight. The process was still an object of curiosity at the time, so it had just been given a significant boost by the American Civil War. Soldiers who met their ends far from home, instead of being buried where they died, were now prepared for the journey home by field embalmers who would help make the trip home possible or at least a bit more hygienic. The embalming of soldiers became not only a growth industry, but something of a racket with uh, unskilled practitioners showing up to collect fees for bad work with inadequate or toxic chemicals like arsenic. Lincoln, in fact, had a hand in seeing laws passed which uh, reigned in these uh, unscrupulous practitioners. Naturally, when it came his time, Lincoln received state-of-the-art embalming and his postmortem appearance was praised by some as surprisingly lifelike. But in New York City, as usual, there were critics. A writer from the New York Post commented, The eyes of the dead president are sunken. His face is somewhat discolored, sallow about the lower part, dark about the eyes and cheeks. His lips are so tightly compressed that the mouth seems to be but a straight, sharp line. It is not the genial, kindly face of Abraham Lincoln. It is but a ghastly shadow. The sunken, shrunken features give the impression that the coffin which encloses him is far too large. A journalist of the New York Times agreed, lamenting, The color is leaden almost brown. The forehead recedes sharp and clearly marked. The eyes deep sunk into the sockets. The cheekbones, always high, are unusually prominent. The cheeks hollowed and deep-pitted. The unnaturally thin lips shut tight and firm, as if glued together. Well, they probably would have been glued together, and honestly, thank God for it. The uh, New York Post writer in his article suggested that uh, plans for further showings had been scrapped thanks to the president's deteriorating condition. But that was far from true. In fact, the discolored body was still to be paraded around for eight more days. But what's eight days, really? It's all relative. Slower or faster, we all ultimately end up the same Embalmed or not, we're all headed to that same place. It's like the song says. Look up, look down that lonesome road Where you and I must go Through the pines, through the pines Where the sun never shines well, shiver when the cold wind everyone's been enjoying our show. We love to receive reviews whenever possible and hope to hear from a number of you in the next week or so when you'll want to get in your request for a B prognostication. 
just message before our deadline, that's October 20th, to be part of the party. And another deadline, November 30th, if you like the music you're hearing in this episode and join our Patreon by November 30th, you'll receive access to a streaming library of all the songs sampled in the show, as well as a dozen or so others with similar themes. Pledge commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher receive a short extra episode in the marvelous and rare format. Other rewards include access to our Patreon blog, posting extra tidbits that almost made it into the episodes. Other rewards include downloads of the show soundscape, heard under the narration, show scripts, my Krampus book, the Bone and Sickle Candle, and unique hand-packed mystery kits. I should also remind you that with the blog posts, soundscapes, and bonus episodes, you can access the entire back catalog, not just rewards going forward. And we do have some new Patreon supporters for whom we're very grateful. Thank you to Caitlin Alansari, Victoria Howard. Nice to have you back, Victoria. Jason Rezik, Amy Sanjari, and Darren Dumetz for upping his pledge. And a mystery donor whose identity I'm honor-bound not to reveal. And thank you to new supporter uh, C. Mark Mara, who also happened to suggest the topic for the show you've just heard. I'm always happy to receive comments and suggestions like this. Oh, and compliments, of course. I take those very well. Speaking of compliments, posting reviews also helps us out a lot. And I'd like to thank uh, Jack of Spades for recently posting his kind review. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>